Bases loaded. Two out. Hard hit into right. Back at the wall. Tie game! Big Poppy! The Grand Slam! This is our fucking city. Hey, Jerry. Tom, how you doing? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Uh, nice game one today, Julian Zavaris. <laughs> I, just, I just fell off the table, that's why I'm laughing. It hasn't happened at Fenway Park for 95 years. The Red Sox are world champions. Welcome, everybody, to episode number four of the Obstructed View Red Sox podcast. I am your host, Chris Henrik. I am joined again by the guys, Stephen Brown, Jamie Gatlin, and Miggy from Texas. Um, special show today. We have a big show. Our first ever guest to join the Obstructed View. Brand, like I said, we're brand new, four episodes in. Um, pretty excited. We have USA Today writer, MLB insider, Bob Nightingale. Bob, welcome to the show. We appreciate your time. How are we doing today? Yeah, doing great. Thanks, guys. All righty. So um, Steve was saying before we got on the show that you are going to be covering Miguel Cabrera's uh, potential 3,000 hit today. Yeah, from uh, you know, from TV. So I've done a lot of stuff with him over the years. So it's kind of a, uh, a cool thing. I mean, it's like one of only four or five players, you know, to do the, uh, you know, 3,000 hits, the 500 home runs, uh, the ribbies, batting average. So. Uh, people don't talk about him enough, but certainly one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time. Yeah, I was thinking it back, uh, you know, a little bit earlier today, um, just remembering when, like, Miguel Cabrera was coming up with the Marlins. You know what I mean? Just like that young kid, he was, I think, what, early, you know, late teens before he, you know, joined with the with the Marlins. And now he's, you know, on the cusp of doing something huge, a 3,000 hit, future Hall of Famer uh, towards the end of the career. So this is this pretty uh, special milestone um, so kind of like to stick around like that milestone, a piece when you broke into the business covering, you know, uh, baseball covering the sport, what was that big milestone that was happening around just when you were breaking into the, the sport? You know, it used to be, uh, you know, I haven't seen a 400 hitter, obviously, but uh, you know, the 400 was a magical milestone, just guys going for it. Uh, when Tony Gwynn was going for it, you know, a couple of years, that was fun. But I, uh, I'm not sure if I've seen a, uh, a 500, 600, 700 home run. You know, I've seen some great things. And uh, as far as just a, a milestone like this, uh, you know, well, you know, the, the biggest ones, I guess, would be the, uh, uh, the Mark McGuire uh, individual season one where he broke uh, Roger Maris's record in 98. Then, of course, when Bonds broke McGuire's record in, in 2001. And then, you know, the Bonds breaks uh, Hank Aaron's records. So those are, those would be the biggest, you know, not a, not a 500, 600, 700 home run thing or a, a 3,000 hit, but those things were uh, pretty cool. Yeah, with the, um, with, with McGuire, it's like his home run, uh, number 62, like that home run is like still one of those that I can remember where I was. Like I was at home, I remember like my dad was laying on the couch, you know, just kind of like walking by and just kind of like stopping and seeing that, that, you know, it's one of those like iconic moments in baseball that you just won't forget. Even as like a Sox fan, you know, Red Sox fan, it's still one that, you know, is a moment I, I won't forget. Um, so it's, that's, 
it's cool call out that you mentioned that that homer from McGuire. Yeah, all the events I've been to, as far as individual, that was the coolest thing I've seen. You know, where you saw, you know, kind of get goosebumps in the uh, Bush Stadium uh, press box there. You know, saw people crying in the press box. And just picking his son up at home plate and then going over and hugging the Maris family. Uh, that, that was very cool. <laughs> hey, uh, Bob, we're curious. Um, so what was your first big break in the industry? You know, what led you to uh, become big figurehead that you are today, you know, being nationally recognized by baseball fans everywhere. You know, I just covered from uh, rock bottom from high schools and uh, picking up the phone and taking scores and phone high school football nights, that sort of thing. And then uh, a break was a, uh, in Kansas city, a baseball writer named Tracy Ringlesby, who's in the hall of fame uh, said, Hey, we could use some help. There's a, it was a two newspaper uh, operation. AM paper and a PM paper and work with him. And so I liked all sports, not just baseball. So I said, okay, uh, give it a try. And uh, so that, that was a break. And then started covering the Royals, and then went to the uh, San Diego Padres, uh, Los Angeles Angels, and the Los Angeles Dodgers for the LA Times. And then, uh, then went on to USA Today in uh, 1998. Oh, wow. Okay. Been all around the block. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So it was, it was fun covering a, a beat. Yeah, I, I think everybody should cover a, a beat and then then move on, do what you want. A lot of a lot of work. But those days too it was a lot more uh fatterization between you know reporters and players where you hang out with those guys, you know, at night when the games are over, that sort of thing. Have lunch with guys, have you know, occasional dinner with guys, uh, sometimes you even go on the team plane. And that was the last, uh, you know, but, but times have changed with that. Yeah, I'm sure things are a little different now. I know they uh, weren't allowing anybody into the clubhouse uh, up until this season, right? Yeah, so finally got that back. And, uh, you know, that seems more more normalcy uh, in the clubhouses. You know, guys have to wear masks, but, you know, you do that trade-off. The fact, just being in there. It's just kind of weird that the only people wearing the masks are the reporters, the players aren't, or anybody else. But a... Uh, yeah, no big deal, particularly uh, getting that access back. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just kind of telling off what he said. I know you said you cover, you know, Football Friday night. You know, I kind of started there, us becoming a new podcast and everything. What kind of advice do you have for us or maybe any listeners just trying to get into the field too? Yeah, just uh, hard work. I mean, just put in the hours, you know, uh, you know be, be at – be at games early, uh, you know, usually still this day, I'm one of the first people at the, in the press box or in the ballpark, you know, the clubhouse opens on there. So I don't care if you're covering high school football or what, just get there early and, uh, you know, hang around and get to know people. The more people, you know, the better off you are, you get more context. Uh, I don't care if it's a guy, you know, wrecking the field at night uh, or, the, or the guy who say, Hey coach, just, you know, it's, it's fun to talk to guys. You never know who has, information or you get you know you get a big break because this guy knew something that that you didn't know that was uh, big news 100 percent, really build leads that way i imagine over time yeah. connections and networking yeah yeah and just a uh sometimes just you know the smallest guys whether it's equipment manager whether it's a guy uh you know the, the bat boys things like that uh there's so many people that know information when the clubhouse doors are closed and uh, sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll share that with you just because, you know, you know them and you become friends with them. 
Absolutely. Jamie? Bob, for you, what's the favorite story that you've written or covered in your career? I covered Bo Jackson coming up in KC. So that was probably the most fun. For a while, I was the only guy he would talk to. He didn't trust many people. And so, uh, you know, covered him with the Royals, went to uh, L.A., we played with the Raiders and, uh, you know, did a thing out there with him. So just covering him and the stuff he was doing, uh, I'll always, you know, remember. Uh, you know, Tony Gwynn, the best hitter player I've ever covered. You know, it's always fun to see him win all those batting titles, that sort of thing. And then, the, uh, you know, World Series, the ones that always stand out was uh, my very first one. Uh, was it was in '86? You know, with the uh, you know the Mets Red Sox game six, and of course going back to 2011 with the uh, Cardinals and the Texas Rangers uh, that game six as well. Uh, it was been a crazy series to cover. There, when you yeah, you know, back in '86 with no internet, you know, no you know nothing like that, no Twitter, so just had to get the story in. Uh, and Thankfully, there was a rain out the next day, so people were able to actually interview people and get the story right during the rain out before, before the Game 7 happened. Yeah, that Red Sox-Mets, I was only very, very young, so I, don't, I only know it from the, the highlights and stuff like that, but it's still painful to think about and even, you know, to kind of not even really live through it, but still painful um, to hear. Ugh. Um so, hey, we'll segue into the Red Sox really quick. So you um, kind of broke some big news for us. Um, was right around a little after, what, St. Patrick's Day? And you broke the, uh, the Trevor Story news to Boston. Um, when, did, when did you start getting some rumblings that the Red Sox were like, like they were truly uh, involved in, uh, in the sweepstakes for Story? Yeah, it was just a, a few days before where, you know, the Red Sox had come out. There were about, you know, four other teams involved. And you wonder how the Red Sox are going to make it work, particularly with Story, so he only wanted to play shortstop. And then, uh, yeah, it wasn't until early that morning, uh, gosh, about 4.35 my time, you know, I got word he's going to the, he's going to Boston. He's going for $140 million. I don't know how many years, but it was 140 So, yeah, it made sense. And, they, uh, yeah, crazy time for him. Then he had to go back because he was having the first baby and then came, came back there. And I think he's still getting adjusted. I was at the Yankees Red Sox uh, opening weekend series, and he was still kind of in a fog. So I think once he gets acclimated, you know, he'll do wonders for that for that team. Yeah, you look, he's looked pretty good. I mean, he's starting to get a little more synced in, I'd say. But I mean, that uh, late start for him probably threw him off his timing a little bit, as far as I can tell. But I think he's a good addition for the team overall. It'll be interesting to see how. Uh, that lines up with uh, Bogart's potential opt-out, in my opinion. You know, if he just shifts over to shortstop in the event that they don't want to uh, retain Bogart's, they obviously want to, I think, but, you know. Yeah, and it gives them protection, exactly right. So now they don't have to panic if they can't, you know, re-sign him or, you know, Bogart's, you know, should trigger the opt-out. So it gives them protection, a little bit like the Dodgers a year ago when they got Trey Turner to go with a Max Scherzer and Turner was a protection in case Seager didn't come back. That's exactly how a lot of us looked at it, too. Kind of being the same way. I actually had a question, too, in regards to, like, before Trevor's story, um, it was reported, you know, quite a bit that, like, you know, Freddie Freeman was potentially on the Red Sox radar. Was that, was that really 
you know, did that really have some legs to it? Because, like, up here, it didn't really make a lot of sense because the, the Sox have, you know, Tristan Costas that's coming up in the system. We theoretically should see him um, before the end of the, the summer. Did that truly have legs? Were the Red Sox engaged at all with, uh, with Freddie Freeman in his camp? If they were, it was just minimal contact. Uh, you know, the, the Blue Jays were, uh, were serious. The Yankees had interest, more of a short-term thing. But once he, uh, you know, it was really just the Dodgers in Atlanta. You know, once he wasn't going there, it was a no-brainer. Uh, the Rays came in hard, but, you know, he says, hey, if I'm going to not be in Atlanta, let me go back home from where I'm, you know, where I'm from in the Orange County area. So probably the only other team that was more serious was Tampa. And he just wasn't that interested in going there, particularly if he had a chance to go back to L.A. I mean, he was an Angel fan growing up, but the, the Dodgers will do. Yeah, that, that enough, right? is, is absolutely stacked now with, with Freddie in there. Were you surprised that he didn't go back to Atlanta, though? With, did that really seem shocking, you know, from like, you know, from your standpoint and even like the guys who cover baseball? Well, it did. I remember doing a story with him in uh, September. And uh, he just, you know, he knew he was a free agent. And all I did was talk about how much he loved uh, Atlanta and wanted to go back there. Uh, you know, the, the folks in uh, Atlanta, the, you know, the, uh, from ownership down, how much they wanted him back. They win the World Series as the base of the franchise. So, yeah, I thought, okay, even if you don't think he's worth that extra year, go ahead and give it to him just for what he means to the uh, organization. So, yeah, I was surprised. I, I really thought he was going back and I think he did too I think if he had to do it over again he might have had different uh, instructions for his agent and things like that I don't think he thought Atlanta would cut cords either it didn't happen until they traded for Matt Olson that's when it finally hit him like oh my god I'm not going to be uh, with Atlanta anymore that's exactly what I was thinking you know it seems like if, if the parties just maybe disengaged and couldn't make an agreement because that, that story dropped out of the blue, you know, that trade for Olsen. And uh, I knew right then and there, there was no way that they could retain both. I mean, both are competent first basemen, you know, first baseman defensively. So when I saw that, uh, that he was on his way from uh, Oakland to Atlanta, that really kind of, kind of put the wrench in the plan for me. And I'm sure. Yeah. They got a good, good price, you know, got him to do it. You know, he's a younger player, four years younger, Signed an eight-year contract uh, for about you know one sixty-eight, and he's a local guy. I mean, he's he's from Atlanta, so it made a lot of sense. And because he was in Oakland, I don't think people realize how good Matt Olson is. Yeah, he's out, he's outstanding. Oh yeah, he's a great he's a great player overall. I guess it kind of works out geographically for both parties involved. I mean, I know that they liked where they played, but you know they're closer to home now, so that's kind of uh, working in both their favors at least. And, you know, not to backtrack too much, but um, I was curious about your, uh, you know, exceptional coverage of the lockdown. You had that thing, like, nailed down. <laughs> I don't know how that whole, you know, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I, I, I just went to bed. I thought it was going to get done that one night, and um, it just kind of crumbled. But you, you were on top of that coverage. I woke up to, like, 50 push notifications from all the beat writers, and you were on top of it. So I'm curious how uh, – how you went about covering it and just how, um, you know, overall, how hectic that whole thing was. Yeah, it was a wild time for sure. And a lot of that's, you know, talking about relationships and stuff like that. We can get some inside information as far as what they're talking about on both sides. Uh, at one point that night, it looked like it was going to be the uh, 
expand the postseason. That would, they weren't agree on that. And then when the player association said, okay, we'll do 12 teams and that way it's ironed out. And that's that got a lot of things going. And I think then it's like, okay, they got, they got a chance to get a deal done. We look at, there was no chance early, earlier in the uh, day. And then uh, I still believe to this day that if they had not gone to bed, they wouldn't get the deal done instead of waiting a week longer. Uh, you know, even if they stayed up till, you know, 11 in the morning or, or noon, because uh, when they showed up again the next day, all that momentum was gone. Oh, I know. I was thinking, drink more coffee, guys. Come on. Just <laughs> <laughs> completely backtrack. And I know one of you said you had a question, right? Yeah. So I wanted to ask um, just more because like the, <clears throat> just how you guys cover when it comes to getting like those stories and the news like out there, you know, just for us to kind of see on Twitter and social media. So in like, like regards to the Red Sox, has it been, what, what's it like trying to, you know, obviously you don't cover them and like from like a beat standpoint, but Bloom's front office is pretty quiet. It's, it's been relatively, you know, it's locked up so to speak. Um, has it been hard getting some, you know, nuggets from the Red Sox camp in regards to players they could be interested in and or trades? Yeah, they keep things a lot more close to the best where the New York Mets are like an open book. They're <laughs> the opposite. Uh, Atlanta does a great job too. Usually Atlanta, you don't hear a word until <clears throat> there's an actual signing or, you know, Matt Olson case to that trade. You know, nothing's ever late. So some teams are very good at that. In Boston, High and Bloom are one of them. I remember, uh, you know, texting a few of the front office people, the Red Sox, about Trevor's story, and they would not confirm it. There was no response. So I went with it anyway, you know, knowing it was right, but I still like to have some confirmation from the team. And, uh, but yeah, they keep cl- things very close to the best. Even during the uh, lockout, I don't think High and Bloom talked to any reporter, you know, in Boston the entire time, just, uh, you know, wanted to keep things inside. So a lot of the really good organizations, uh, Dodgers are good at it too keep their secrets close without, you know, you know, why, uh, why tip off your competition to what you're about to do. Do you think that that is going to benefit them in regards to the potential? Cause I know obviously Xander Bogarts and Rafi Devers have both said like, Hey, now the season started, we don't want to talk in regards to an extension, but you know, do you think that just the way this team kind of goes about its business, that would it be surprising to you that the Sox could get a deal done with these guys um, within the season, just the way that the Red Sox are so quiet and kind of go about their business? They could. Uh, yeah, I think the same thing with Aaron Judge with the Yankees. You know, same thing that could happen during the season. You know, the tricky thing with Bogarts is he already has a contract. He's got three years of $60 million left. So he actually has to opt out. And that's why the Red Sox just offered, you know, an extra year at, at $30 million. So he is a little more uh, trickier than, uh, than Devers, I think. But yeah, it's very possible that, you know, you can still go back backdoor channel with the agent. You know, you don't have to have the players involved. You just have, okay, is there anything here that we can talk about and maybe get something done? And maybe we'll see something like that, you know, midsummer, at least some conversations. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen with that front office. They are incredibly tight-lipped. Um, I had another follow-up question, kind of just in regards to what you had said about Veritech. So do you have like a pretty good relationship with some of the guys in that front office slash coaching back from their playing? Uh, yeah, guys that I know. And there are some guys I've known for, you know, for a long time. Uh, you know, I never covered Ox Corps, but I covered his uh, brother, Joey. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, and I've known, uh, you know, going back, you know, when, when Theo Epstein was there with Jed Hoyer and Jason McLeod, uh, you know, go back with them. In fact, a, uh, so Jason McLeod, who was our scouting director, he still has his wall. I did a story when they were down 3-0 to the Yankees in the uh, LCS. And, uh, and Jason McLeod says, hey, it may sound crazy, but if we win tonight, I think we're going to, we're going to win it. We're going to win the series, win four straight. And, uh, you know, never happy for. So anyways, you know, waited and uh, sure enough it happened. I wrote the story, but, but he called it. That was a fun front office to be around. Those guys would hang out and kind of party and stuff like that. <laughs> a little bit different era, but you know, Theo was so young too. And, you know, a lot of times he would act like, you know, he's back in a fraternity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's pretty cool that you have such a, uh, you know, like a little bit of a history with all these teams. I mean, if you've been in the business for long enough, you know, it kind of just naturally and organically grows like that, but can't help but notice that you're hearing that alarm that gives me PTSD in the morning. Sounds like you might have. <laughs> <to keep going. laughs> so you know, like, you know you what know. I did actually, I set the alarm. Uh, thinking our show is going to be a, a little later. And yeah, said, no, you're all good. You're all good. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't want to mess up. So a lot of times I'll do that, just set the alarm to make sure that, okay, why is the alarm going off? I must have uh, something about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually for your show. <laughs> well, thank you. We appreciate you setting the alarm for us. It means a lot. Um, well, you know, you got about 10 minutes until that game starts, and we don't want to keep you, uh, you know, on edge for too long. So we got one little goofy question. In our last episode, we somehow had this argument relating to hot dogs and if they should be dipped in condiments or if the condiments should be put on top. And it was essentially unanimous that they should be put on. But uh, Miggy's girlfriend over here was saying that they should be dipped and apparently other people are green based off of our Twitter polls. So we were curious what you had to say on that matter, because I really hope it's the right answer. <laughs> I've never seen it dipped or heard of it dip. I'm a, uh, I'm a uh, mustard guy. Uh, uh-huh. A lot of mustard, sometimes I throw some onions on there. But yeah, if, if you had it dipped in mustard, you know, why not? Maybe a little bit of extra, because I like plenty of mustard on it. So, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen something like dip, you know, like an ice cream cone or something like that. Yeah. I will no. say they, uh, in, in Milwaukee, they had a, a bratwurst, guys making bratwurst, great bratwurst. So one of our, one of the writers with us covering the Angels had a uh, 10 bratwurst during the game. So he set the Milwaukee County Stadium record for bratwurst in one game. <laughs> he didn't feel so hot the next day, though. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Too good. I mean, I could put away like two sausage and peppers, like one like before the uh, game at Fenway Park, and usually like one after. But man, ten bratwurst in a uh, course of a game—that's <laughs> got indigestion written all over it. Um, but uh, do you guys have anything else uh, that you want to throw out there before we uh, wrap this up? Well, I will make one point about that ten bratwurst. Um, I lost a bet over the hot dog thing. I said that. Red Sox would sweep Toronto, and obviously that wasn't the case after last night's game. So I now have to eat six whole hot dogs, and the kick is that I don't like hot dogs. I've had approximately two or three since I was in third grade, and I am 25. So that's going to be horrible. Other than that, Bob, thank you so much. It was incredible to have you on, and uh, we'd love to have you back if you're interested. Great. Yeah, uh, sounds great. Yeah, Fenway Fenway is still my favorite ballpark. I know people lump, you know, Fenway and Wrigley together, but just with the Green Monster and the, and the uh, atmosphere there, I mean, at Fenway, they take it a lot more seriously 
or Chicago is just, you know, one big party. Oh. Uh, but yeah, it's, I stayed right at a hotel right behind the Green Monster. It takes me 45 seconds to walk in. But talking about hot dogs and smells, you, you get that as soon as you walk in. Still a very, very special place. <laughs> we all love Fenway. Even those giant poles that get in the way. You're in the back and the nose bleeds. <laughs> right, right. the name, obstructed view, you know? I yeah, there's a lot to it, you know, with the uh, right field now and the uh, the upper, you know, those uh, luxury box on top of the uh, right field grandstands and, of course, the uh, seats above the Green Monster. So they made a lot of changes there. Yeah, the new Truly deck is looking real good. You're going to have to come catch it soon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like I said, it's a fun place and it's a uh, fun city. And, they, uh, but yeah, it's, it's fun with the fans because they, uh, you know, take it so seriously, and I still get a kick at the Sweet Caroline, you know, in the eighth inning. It's so it was a blast. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> How could we forget? Right. Anything else, boys? I think that should cover it. It's been fun. Well, Bob, thank you again. You really appreciate this. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, let Maggie hit. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. I'll be looking out for that tweet. <laughs> okay, I'll be on it. <laughs> All right. Take All care. All right, take care. Bye now.